If you're looking for a community to accompany you in your leadership journey, you should join our Savvy Supervisors Facebook group. Insights and videos, supports, great group discussions, and weekly themes to help you hone your leadership skills all for free. You can find it at SavvySupervisors.com. That will take you directly to the Facebook page. And if you're interested in finding out more about our supervisory leadership course, which is our signature course and has been used with over 100 companies with amazing results, you can check that out at supervisoryleadership.co. That's supervisoryleadership.co. Welcome to the Culture and Leadership Podcast. My episode today, I have a featured guest who I'm very honored to present. His name is Louis Cardinal. He is a communicator and an educator. He has dedicated his life's work to creating and maintaining connections and relationships that cross cultural divides. Lewis is a Woodland Cree from Northern Alberta and a direct descendant of several treaty makers and signatories, which he'll tell us more about later. His work has mirrored his personal vision of a socially just and responsive society. Lewis's long track record of public service includes founding board member of Alberta Aboriginal Arts, board member of Theatre Network, co-chair of the Aboriginal Commission for Human Rights and Justice, and trustee of the Council for a Parliament of World Religions, just to mention a few. Lewis has received the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal for Public Service and the Inspire Award for Public Service, which is the highest award given to an Indigenous person by the Indigenous Peoples of Canada. The Province of Alberta's Centennial Medal for his work in human rights and diversity, the Distinguished Alumni Award from Grant McEwen University, and was recently conferred the honorary degree of Doctor of Sacred Letters from St. Stephen's College at the University of Alberta. Wow, that is a very impressive bio. And I am so honored that you could be on my podcast today, Lewis. Thank you. No, the honor is all mine. Thank you for uh, inviting me. So I did the formal bio that tells everybody how important it is to sit up or stand up or pay attention and listen because you've got something really important to say. Uh, But maybe fill us in in some of the personal details. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, I come from the uh, Sucker Creek Cree First Nation, which is a a woodland Cree First Nation in northern Alberta on the shores of the Lesser Slave Lake. Most of my family is still there, of course, but I've had the the opportunity to grow up in Edmonton since I was 10. So Edmonton really is is my home, but uh, northern Alberta, Lesser Slave Lake area is my ancestral home. And I try to get back as much as I can to touch the earth and reconvene with my relatives and and that sort of thing. But Edmonton has been my home uh, since, oh, I won't say how long ago, but quite a while ago. And uh, it's certainly a place that gives me a lot of uh, energy and a lot of connection because a lot of my relatives going way back to the century before last uh, had uh, relationships and things here in Edmonton. So it is, again, very much a, a home for me. And what I do is um, I work in relationship development, I think is the key thing. If you if we were to boil it down to something, it's all about relationships. And that's a teaching that many elders and traditionalists that I've worked with throughout my life have been continuously saying. When I asked elders, what is the most critical thing that we as human beings are facing today? Their response collectively was, relationships. It seems that we have forgotten how to have relationships, uh, not only amongst human beings, but also with our environment, with the cosmos, with the spirit world, etc. So a lot of the work that I've done has been building bridges between two worlds that don't understand each other. Now, one thing people don't know about me is that my Cree name, I have a spiritual name, a ceremonial name that uh, you eventually earn uh, when you're practicing indigenous traditions. And I've been fortunate enough to be uh, named a blue sky. In Cree, we say sipi go gisik, that means blue sky. Um, there's a longer version of it, which means the one who comes from the uh, from the clear blue sky. That's a beautiful name. I'm, I'm very honored to have that. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, but also what comes along with it, during the ceremony that was given to me, they said that the spirit world recognizes that the work that I'll be doing is to build bridges between two worlds that don't understand each other. 
And so my whole life, even before I got that name, was being that kind of diplomat, that kind of relationship builder. So a lot of my work has taken me into intergovernmental work, into community development work, and also into interfaith work, because I believe that a discourse needs to happen between different cultures and faiths. Uh, spiritual faiths and traditions, and the indigenous and uh, spiritual uh, traditions belong in that circle of other religions, faiths, and spiritual practices. So a lot of my work goes back to how do we develop relationships? Then everything else then kind of makes sense when you look at it that way in my life, because I have quite an eclectic career, looks like it, but it's all rooted in that very basic principle. Right. So oftentimes when there is a First Nations address, people will end it with all my relations. And I think that's a a really important reminder that we are connected with everything, that there's nothing that we do that doesn't affect everything else. And so we need to think carefully about what we're doing and not just randomly bulldoze our way through things and people and the environment. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's what I think where Canada is at right now. I believe that we're entering into a whole new relationship and way of seeing ourselves as Canadians. I think the previous version of how we saw ourselves as, as Canada and as Canadians is, is, uh, is due for an overhaul because Canada is a uh, quite a multicultural and diverse uh, citizenry now more than, than ever has been. So I think this is a good thing. There are some people who want to hold on to the good old days and not change what was. But as a healthy and forward-looking nation, I think that we have to engage in that kind of dialogue to, to re-see ourselves. Because we're different right. than we were 150 years ago. I so agree with you. And the good old days is just an illusion. Yes. Uh, there have never been any good old days. And when people say we need to go back to, I don't, you never go back to anything. You're always moving forward. You can know where your roots are yes, and you exactly. look towards the horizon. But you can't. And what would you want to go back to anyway? Because it would be a smaller version of yourself and a smaller version of who we are. Exactly. It's much like living in your childhood for the rest of your life, right? Exactly. Yeah. There's a natural progression. And so we have to grow and we are. Uh, And that's as I have a lot of faith, even though some of the news that that we see today about indigenous relations and and things like that uh, are still issues that we need to address. I still have a positive outlook that Canada is headed in a direction that's really going to set a model for the rest of the world to watch. Well, we have to have that. If we don't have hope, we can't move forward because we're just suspicious of everybody's motives all the time. Exactly, exactly. I wanted to come back to one thing you said before I get into my usual questions, and that is I love the way you started everything with the idea that it's important to have spiritual connections and that the different religions need to connect and establish new ways to speak with and be together. I think that is really important. We are all spiritual beings. And as long as we keep negating that, we really can't connect and have true relationships with each other. Don't you agree? I totally agree. Absolutely. And I think without an understanding, the spiritual understanding that comes from the Indigenous perspective, we are completely handicapped. Well, you know, all we want to do as Indigenous people is to sit shoulder to shoulder with, uh, with other human beings and put our heads together and our hearts together to create a future that's better for our our descendants. And that's what it's all about. We have to leave what this world that has been given to us, because as the old saying goes, we borrow it from our children. So we have to return it in better condition if we can, um, or with repairs <laughs> if we can, and give it back to our children, because then they're going to pick it up and uh, start start to work with it as well. Right. I think what I was referring to is that just the idea that indigenous spirituality is just so connected to the fact that we are interrelated and that's what's missing so much from what we've got. You know, it's not about being right. It's about being connected. That's right. Exactly. So I wanted to ask you if you could share a couple of incidents from your childhood that you think made you into the person you are today. You know, one thing that really, because I, I remember this question coming up and I had a chance to think about it. Um, I have to go, go back to my very earliest memories. And that was with uh, my grandfather, Frank Cardinal, who was chief of Sector Creek for a number of years, going back to 1939, I think it was. But anyway, he was also one of the founders of the Indian Association of Alberta, which was a huge political organization in the 60s, which at the time was led by my uncle Harold and my father was vice president. But anyway, living and working with my grandfather from time to time, I was very struck by his deep, authentic 
sincere commitment to the people. As a chief back in the old days, they didn't have budgets and travel per diems and that sort of thing. They had to literally get on the back of a horse to go visit people. They had to make their rounds in the community. But what he had taught me along with my grandmother was a teaching that I remember my grandmother kneeling down to me, looking me at the eyes and says that when you become successful, you have to turn and help those up to give them a hand up because there are some people who are not as lucky or fortunate as you. And so you have an obligation to help those people up and to look after the people. So that was something that really struck me so much. And my grandmother had a, uh, like, I swear, the garden must have been an acre, you know, mostly potatoes, but we used to work that. You know, we used to weed it and do different things. And, but uh, she would then grow that. But it wasn't just for her. She also grew it for community members. So she always made sure that she had some to give out to, to other folks. So there was always that sense of giving back to the community and being sincere and authentic and looking after the welfare or the well-being of your family, but also of, of your community as well. And then my other huge uh, influence, I think, um, was uh, being at the eye of a hurricane. In 1968 to about 1974, that was the pinnacle at the time of the uh, indigenous movement or what we called the Indian movement or what we also called the Red Power Days. And that was uh, that was the days of protests, the American Indian movement, uh, very heavy, heavy times, right? Very confrontational, being on the street or uh, uh, demonstrating and protesting consistently. Uh, in 1968, um, Trudeau decided that he was going to eradicate indigenous rights and reservations. And um, it, it was called the White Paper that was led by, actually brought forward by Chrétien at the time he was Minister of Indian Affairs. So my Uncle Harold, along with the chiefs and the elders of Alberta, responded with a paper called the Red Paper. The Red Paper was formerly known as Citizens Plus. So the Red Paper countered the White Paper. And so for the very first time, uh, the media, uh, other friends and supporters from across Canada supported that cause. And it forced the government to retreat from its uh, desire to eradicate Indigenous rights and land base. And then instead what happened is that the federal government then took Citizens Plus and it became the framework of Indigenous relations. So it then began to uh, give more control like for education of Indigenous people, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a very pivotal thing. And my brother and I, Lauren Cardinal, uh, we were in the eye of that of that hurricane because my father was the vice president to, to Harold, my uncle. Harold perhaps is one of the most uh, recognized Indigenous leaders of the 20th century. And so that led to then the, red, the all that work with the red paper, Indian control of Indian education, and that led to the 1982 repatriation of the Constitution, which then included in Section 35 of the Constitution, the protection of Indigenous rights. Um, so Section 35 was that inclusion, recognizing treaties and so forth and, and so on. So that be, that was a huge thing. And so we were there in the middle of that, but with all the protests, <laughs> everything else that came along with it, it was it was quite an experience. And I'm still drawing on that whole history and stuff that I was involved with at the time. So it became, you know, very much a model of the work that I continue to do. Hmm. Those are really interesting. The first story, you're talking about the influence of your grandparents on making you focus in a way that was outside of yourself. You're always thinking, you know, what's outside of me and who is there that needs to be included. So you really focus towards inclusion and you focus towards community. And then in the second instance, you're talking about really um, stopping something that could have wiped out completely the Indigenous peoples of Canada in already a fragile state from the previous enactments of injustice. And so taking that power, which is yours, and saying, this is who we are, we are forced to be recognized with is huge. Yeah, and, and very, I mean, it's something that just moves my heart all the time, so. <laughs> yeah, and then it had an, it had the effect that you wanted. And you learned probably a lot of things about organizing, about working with other people, about balancing challenge and encouragement, uh, about when to be pro- provocative and when to be, uh, you know, con- consultational. <laughs> I'm sure well, absolutely. all, yes. all those things in that, in that time. Well, good relationships are based on good communication. And uh, if you if you have ever read any military history, if you really want to discombobulate uh, an opposition, you eradicate their ability to communicate. 
so the opposite very much is true. If you want to improve relationships, if you want to improve prosperity, communication is central and it has to be meaningful. And so that sometimes gets lost when we talk about consultation. Sometimes it's a checkbox or a, or a list of things to check off, but meaningful conversation means that you start talking with the heart and you start talking about the same things that you find in common looking in the same direction not into each other's eyes but in the same direction yes i so agree and uh, so speaking from the heart looking in the same direction together is just critical that's, that's so important otherwise you're, yeah. it's just rhetoric you're just opening your mouth and words that mean nothing are coming out well, that's why an important word that often is misunderstood uh, and misused is consensus. Yes. Consensus, from the Indigenous perspective, is a ceremony in itself. It's a ceremony of dialogue uh, where you lead to an agreement that you both agree or your multi-parties will agree that this is what we need to do. And it, and it speaks to the interests and the heart of everyone involved. But you don't get to that consensus unless you have that uh, honest and meaningful conversation first. So it's consensus in and of itself when you're engaged in that depth of conversation really becomes, in so many ways, a healing process as well. So yeah. it has a duality to it, right? You're a trust building, but you're also be doing a, a healing ceremony as well. So some people don't see that. It, it right. is because the thing is when you come together on, in shared understanding, that's consensus. You listen to everybody's voices. You considered it carefully. Yeah. And then you're moving forward in unity towards a shared understanding. That is, that's what the world really needs right now. Yes, ex exactly. And I agree. So let me ask you about the groups that you were born into. I mean, you have an illustrious and distinguished lineage, family lineage. You have the Woodland Cree group. You have many other groups that you were born into. What are some of the things that influenced you from those groups? Well, you know, there's there's a couple of things here. One is uh, I have a very strong uh, and prestigious Métis history as well. My grandmother was uh, Métis, born at Lac Saint Anne, just outside of Edmonton, a ways, uh, which was going back into the you know 1800s, early 1800s, was a place that um, that was really a center center point for the Métis in this area. And then, you know, they went on to also found St. Albert and that sort of thing. It was a Cunningham family. So that's an important part of my life. And, and what that particular part of my, of my family heritage has taught me is industry, is um, the work ethic that came along with that, um, um, the, the ability to work uh, between two worlds, I think, was really important because the Métis were basically, you know, we're, we're really the bridges and the conduits between, between a, a, a First Nation existence and, a, and, a, and a, the European tradition. So I believe that that also figures out into my broad life overview is that, you know, building bridges between both worlds. But the Métis taught me about that hard work and that determination and that tenacity that you don't say no. You know, you don't you don't give up. You don't say, OK, well, it's difficult. So let's move on. But they say you just keep going. You keep going. And when you put in enough work and enough thought behind things, you can move things forward. So the Métis side of me, I'm very proud of the Cunningham family. Been able to trace that family first landing in Canada in 1812 uh, from County Sligo, Ireland. And then uh, going um, in 1812, my uh, my uh, fifth great grandfather was um the first of 32 of the first 32 settlers to settle the Red River settlements, what is now and what is now Winnipeg. Wow. And then he married to a, a large Métis family, the Bruces. And then he married um, uh, Nancy Ann Bruce. And then they had a whole bunch of kids and they've worked in the forts all the way from uh, uh, from Winnipeg, all the way out here to Edmonton, right up into the closing of the fort in 1915. So we have very strong history that way. Again, Another connection for me to, to Edmonton, but the other side of me is the uh, is my Cree, my woodland Cree tradition. Now, as much as I've talked about my grandfather and my father and my and my uncle and the work that they did, um, the treaty makers on the side of my family are Mostos and Canusio. They're the ones who first made Treaty Number Eight, which is the which was the largest uh, land uh, treaty anywhere in the Americas up to until the Nunavut. Uh, did their agreement. So they made Treaty 8, and then a number of their brothers who signed it were also my, my relatives. 
but in Treaty 6, I have two signatures. One is Papa's Chase, which a lot of people know here in Edmonton. Uh, and the other was Michelle Kellen, who was a half Iroquois. But they, are, they were signatures to Treaty 6 here in, in the Edmonton area so far. And that's just some of the cursory uh, genealogy that I've been able to, uh, to find. Can you explain to me the significance of being a signatory so that the audience understands yeah. what that is? Treaties are what makes Canada Canada legally as a nation state. Canada, going back to 1763, even before it was called Canada, 1763, the Royal Proclamation, 1763 uh, declared by uh, uh, King George. Anyway, point is 1763, they create this royal proclamation that states that in order for the dominion of uh, the crown to expand in what is North America, it has to treat with all indigenous people that it comes across, that no one can access land or acquire land from indigenous people, indigenous nations. And it recognizes that indigenous peoples in Canada are nations that only a nation to nation can make treaty with each other. So in order for Canada to become legitimate in the eyes of the world at the time is that it also needed to make treaty with the indigenous people. So Canada, all of Canada is, well, with parts of British Columbia that still needs work, but uh, I would say about 95% of Canada has been treated with indigenous people. So that sets the framework of what Canada is about. So Indigenous people have a unique relationship with Canada because of that, um, of that relationship through treaty and treaty making. Now, the only other group that has constitutional protection as a unique relationship to the government or the crown of Canada are the Francophones in Quebec. So they have a unique relationship that is established between them and the crown vis-a-vis the government of Canada. Uh, so the same thing is true with Indigenous people, particularly First Nations. The Inuit have now made their treaties, what is called Nunavut now, and, and the other, other regions, they've made their treaties with them recently. So, they, so technically, while it's called an agreement, it's really a, uh, a treaty for lack of a better word. Louis, when you're explaining this, it makes me think that in the beginning of school, when children are going to school, what they should be learning about Canada is exactly what you said. Yes. That this is a treaty nation. We began with the idea that we need to negotiate with the people that already are there rather than going in and killing them all. Yes, uh, exactly. Even if it, in principle, was good and didn't always work out in practice, at least in principle, it started out that way. Treaties, while they, they can be looked at as agreement and legal arrangements and that sort of thing, that is what I would call the denotation of treaty, right? The definition of treaty. The connotation of treaty, which is the most powerful part, is that it is about relationships. Uh, treaty is a way, when we understand treaty from the indigenous perspectives from many indigenous nations, treaty making was an adoption ceremony. That means that we, the treaty makers, would adopt Canada as our relatives. Hmm, that's beautiful. I didn't know that. Yeah, treaties, when they, uh, when they started going back to 1613 with the first uh, two-row wampum treaty in, uh, in, in North America and in Canada, um, it talks about for as long as the sun shines, the grass grows and the water flows, which is a standard statement in all the treaties, uh, the number of treaties anyway, across Canada. But it also talks about how we would uh, live together like brothers and sisters, like family that we would walk side by side and we would share in the bounty of the land and that we will have our own way of governing ourselves and maintaining our, our life and livelihood as was before. Um, the two row wampum talks about two vessels going down the great river of life, uh, the indigenous one and the uh, European one, but they will not outpace each other, but they will be side by side and share the bounty of that great river. And so that was the first definitions of those things. So as you move across Canada, you start to see the number of treaties coming up and everything like that. That was very much the same thing because life was changing. We knew that if we did not have a relationship agreement with the newcomers, that conflict was inevitable. Even though there may have been understandings from the European side at the time of uh, the acquisition of land, you know, illegally, um, or immorally or unethically from, from indigenous people. We understood the treaties to mean these things, but we also know that it wasn't an issue of misdefining or misunderstanding uh, treaties. There is 
ample evidence that the treaty commissioners understood exactly what indigenous people saw and understood about treaties and what they were getting into. So my relatives, for example, uh, in, uh, in Treaty 8, most of us in Canuso, a lot of our people were multilingual, mm -hmm. we were well aware of what was happening in the world at the time, right? So we knew uh, the ins and outs. We spoke French, English, uh, Michif, and Cree. So there were four languages. My grandmother spoke all those languages. But so that was, a, you know, that, that brought a different light to how we negotiated treaties. But treaties have to be seen as an adoption ceremony. So therefore, you are my relative. You are a part of my family. And the golden rule within indigenous worldviews that you do not make war on your family. In all the wars since the beginning of Canada, indigenous uh, men and women had volunteered in larger numbers than any other group to defend Canada in times of war. Sadly, even though they did that, they could have been stripped of their treaty rights and, and their connection to their land base if they, uh, if they took the uh, GI Bill that came out afterwards. But nonetheless, we fulfill their obligations. Right. There's a, I think with the noble intent and moving forward, in spite of the fact that it's so much injustice has happened, that noble intent is, is foundational and inspirational and is what's going to help us actually reach our goal. Well, yeah, we are getting there. And a part of what you said before is uh, teaching our, our children in schools about treaty while we can teach the legalese side of it. The most important part is the relationship because I have obligations to you, Marie, as a treaty person, but you also have obligations to me. So when you see me and my people struggling against injustice, there is an obligation there to stand with the people because the treaties were made with the people of Canada, not necessarily only the government. So right. we all have obligations to each other. Yeah, the honor of one is the honor of all. Exactly. The hurt of one is the hurt of all. The glory of one is the glory of all. The humiliation of one is the humiliation of all. We really are in this together. The indigenous peoples adopted the European people in, and then that that, that covenant that I, I mean, to me, I'm saying covenant because it feels like a covenant. It is a sacred covenant, sacred writ. So let me go to that because you're you've spoken so much of bridges. Let's go to that other side of the bridge and say, well, from the groups that you chose to belong to, because you obviously have uh, chosen to belong to a lot of different groups. Yeah. So what has influenced you? What are some of the group the groups that have contributed to your influences? Oh my goodness! I mean, there's a yeah, there's a lot of number of groups. I'm I'm a uh, traditional practitioner of my of my Cree traditions. I'm a sun dancer and pipe carrier and, and that sort of thing. Um, and there's family within family uh, within those those sorts of things. But uh, working in the in, in the broader world, working in, in education, for example, um, I think an education is where the stone drops in our society. It's where changes are are first made. Uh, in any nation. I mean, the great indoctrinator of any nation is its education system, right? Um, and indoctrination doesn't have to be a pejorative term. It just means you're teaching values and traditions that you hold uh, to be um, important. Uh, so out of the number of groups, and there's a lot of groups, I'm just having a problem kind of <laughs> figuring out which one, because um, they all bring particular things to me, right? Working with the interfaith community, for example, in the Edmonton area, gives me a tremendous amount of faith that there are those from, from a very background of spiritual traditions, from the Muslim tradition to the Christian traditions, and that there is commonality with us in those great religions as well. So that gives me the, um, the support and the insight that I need to be able to be a better treaty person. So the more that I understand the Muslim traditions and the Christian traditions and other religious traditions, uh, the more I'm able to be respectful. So I've prayed in a mosque, I've prayed in a temple, I've prayed in, you know, uh, you know, in, in cathedrals and that sort of thing, uh, because that spiritual connection is, is there and, and you can feel it there as well. There's nothing wrong with the religions, just how people use it from time to time in a negative way. Exactly. One creator. We basically all belong to the same religion, evolving in different ways, like different rooms in a house or grades in a school. Yeah. Um, when we see that, we, we can work together because we don't need to defend anything. Why would you need to defend your bathroom from your kitchen? Um, yes, exactly. Or your grade two from your grade three. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's all the same. It's the same. <laughs> but to get back to that question, I think the other group... Uh, as, as you know, I've been politically involved as well on, on the mainstream, both ran for city council and ran federally as an NDP candidate. Um, I think, uh, you know, to define me politically, I'm a, I'm a 
I'm a social Democrat. Um, but also that, and the reason why that's important to me, because within that there are streams uh, or threads of indigeneity woven into it. Um, so, you know, it's very much reflects that value system that indigenous people had looking after other people, making sure everybody has enough, you know, seeking uh, social justice, um, and those sorts of things. So that, and, and in my experience in running within the federal party, I mean, I'm not going to comment on some of the, uh, issues that, that surround <laughs> politics because there's a lot regardless of what party you're in, but nonetheless, um, it really showed that there there is a way to make a broader connection between indigenous communities and the and the governments that be. But it also taught me a lot about how uh, federal party politics work in Canada. So it is a great education, and, and I continue to support that. And yeah. some of my best friends are, are liberals and, and conservatives. So <laughs> yes, that whole um, orientation <coughs> politics was something that started you know really way back in your great 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 grandparents. Um, on different sides, and you know, it takes a political impetus to found St. Albert. It takes a, a political impetus to be a connector between cultures and learn the different languages, um, and then to take action in a way that's going to help uh, develop and build your community in relation with other communities. It's, it's all political. Somebody needs to take that first step, particularly in mainstream politics. And one example I use is when I ran for city council in 2007, uh, I was the only Indigenous person running for anything. Um, uh, the next election, we had uh, 11 people sign up to run for school trustee and, and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. And then in the last election, we elected, we had 19 people running and we elected our first First Nations um, city councillor. Well, Lewis, that's because you broke the trail. Uh, yeah, somebody has to go first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they say the first one through the wall is usually the bloodiest. <laughs> yeah, of course. So and and then what happens is everybody's going well. Listen, it's possible because I saw Lewis and Lewis yeah. is like me, and exactly. I could do it too, right? So yeah, that's exactly. yeah. a possibility. Well, those are those are really really interesting. Tell me a little bit about you know your temperament, what you were born with, the part of your personality that is just who you were from the time you were just a little babe. I think one one of the things was that I was a very I was a diplomat. I was a peacemaker. I when I was uh, I'd stay at my grandparents' place quite often, right? Usually during the summers and, and that's or when my father was traveling on on, on business and, and that sort of thing. So I spent a lot of time with my grand at my grandparents' place, but also um, a lot of time with my relatives. Now, just around my grandmother, you know, there were there were a number of, you know, of our families, and so we had we had enough to make two hockey teams, <laughs> and uh, and we often played in there, and and you know, playing together. Uh, Ultimately, you run you run into you know uh, issues with, with each other. You know, you did that. No, you didn't. And that sort of thing. So I learned how to be a diplomat, try to calm things down. So that's always been a part of who I am, a peacemaker in that tradition, I guess. And and, and I think I get that inspired a lot by my father, of course, and and my mother and and my grandmother, and so my relatives, basically, right up to the treaty makers, were about making peace and living in a peaceful a peaceful way so that's part of my nature people often will comment on you know how kind and um easygoing i am but uh you know sometimes this society can see that as a as a weakness but in my tradition it's a strength and so and i've been able to use that strength in developing relationships and doing things in edmonton for example in 2005 2006 we did the edmonton urban aboriginal accord it was the first time in edmonton's history utilizing indigenous processes, utilizing consensus, where the whole of the indigenous community agreed and looked in the same direction for a while. That's and, quite an accomplishment. Yes, and then we developed the Urban Aboriginal Accord Relationship Agreement, and we developed the Edmonton uh, Declaration with Aboriginal people. Uh, so it, it set the framework for what now the city has been able to do, to be more inclusive uh, and more um, uh, relational with Indigenous people. And we have our first First Nations counselor. <laughs> it's, it's really, really important work. It's groundbreaking and foundational, and it's setting the stage for where we need to be as far as our intergroup relations, intercultural, yeah. interpolitical, inter-everything, really. Well, then personality, though, is a result of your experience, what you've done to face obstacles, and how you've developed the things that you didn't even know you had till you faced some challenge. Is there something that you can think of that would apply to that? Well, I think in facing the naysayers, the noisy negativists, if you want to call them that as well, 
one thing that I've learned is that the world is filled with these types of individuals, uh, regardless of where they come from. Um, I was faced in developing the Urban Accord relationship agreement, was faced by indigenous and non-indigenous people who were saying this will never happen. You can never achieve consensus. It won't happen, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but I believed otherwise. Again, taking that inspiration from, from my uh, ancestors about moving it forward. Somebody has to do it. But with perseverance and the consistency of vision, being very clear on what the vision is and working from your heart, as well as your head, but moving things with your heart. Because I have a, from this experience, I developed a motto is that when you touch the heart, the mind follows. Or when you move the heart, the mind follows. That's my motto. Because we can't only intellectually pursue something, we need to pursue it emotionally and intuitively as well. And what really helps to move those messages along is story. So when you and I trade a story, and I see myself in your story, that's the first thread of relationship building. And we pull on that, right? So I see myself in you. You see yourself in me and my stories. And I think that's one of the most powerful tools that you can use is, okay, tell us a story about this particular thing. And it's amazing at how many people will say, well, hey, that's just like me. When they get to that point, there's hope that fills the room. You can start doing stuff now. And so that's one of, one of, one of the things that I've, that I've learned. I just love that. I'm thinking it's also when you're sharing a story with somebody, the mutual seeing each other, you know, basically, again, you're seeing the spirit in the other person and you're seeing that commonality. But there's also perhaps something to aspire to. And so to say, you know, I want to be like that, to have that in front of us and say, this is where I'd like to be. And I think that's what's missing for a lot of youth now is they don't have a high enough model to aspire to. Uh, they're aspiring to things that are really low bar. Um, and so once they see their nobility and also see that there's this, there, there are so many people that, you know, I want to be like that is a really worthwhile thing to do. So yeah. and people, uh, when you had that first political experience where you were probably the most bloodied, you also created a, an aspirational story for others. And I think that's very, very critical to advancing. Yes. Uh, so let me ask you, you are pretty good at crossing cultures and building consensus, but are there times when you became aware that your understanding just really hit some cultural shock moment where you went, you know what, I obviously, I missed something here. Have you had an experience like that that you can articulate? Throughout my whole life, I've, you know, my, my difference has always been pointed out. So I've been told by authorities and, uh, you know, the masters that be that I was different and really didn't fit in. The, so that's been a consistency throughout my life. I think more specifically, when I look to grade four, it seems, that's when I knew that I was on the outside looking in. That's when I really understood it, because we moved from uh, uh, my First Nation to, uh, to Edmonton here uh, permanently when I was in grade four. Yeah. And so that's where it became painfully direct that I was somebody else. And, and I remember they were having a, you know, schoolyard game. Let's see who the toughest kid is in, uh, you know, in grade four. And, uh, and I said, well, I want to participate. And they said, no, you don't count, you know, those sorts of things. So you're, you're isolated and you are looked at and treated differently. So it's been a consistent thing. Um, but fortunately, I had some very good role models and also access to cultural traditions that helped me kind of understand myself and to accept myself. It was difficult, like any other youth, accepting yourself for who you are is always a challenge uh, when you're growing up. And sometimes it takes longer than others to, to accept that fact. And I think what's happened over the years is that while I'm motoring ahead, sometimes I'll get stopped dead in my tracks because that difference is pointed out again. Oh, we don't do things like that this way. Oh, this isn't the right way to do it. And I go, oh, okay, I got to step back here, you know, and, and kind of catch my breath, do some teaching and slowly move forward. <laughs> you know, So, yeah. Yeah. It's painful, but at the same time, look what it's developed for skills and strengths and talents in you. And I hope that those uh, those lessons learned can be um, uh, valuable to my to my children and the work that they do. That's the only hope that I have is that I have something to contribute to them as they are now taking on the world in, in big ways. Mm-hmm. I would rather that that kind of injustice anywhere in the schoolyard, particularly where first people first feel it so intensely, 
never happen. Yeah. But at the same time, the lesson is in the pain. It's always something we can learn to transform from whatever we face. And that's why I'm, I, I'm uh, in education, right? Um, my, my PhD studies have been in, in Indigenous people's education and education as a general thing. I do lecturing and I also uh, have been sessional instructor at the University of Alberta for some time. But um, education then becomes that important place where we teach those values and those principles. So our education system also needs to have that overhaul in terms of what it is that we're teaching, not only IQ, but also EQ. We need to be teaching from those from both those places and, and, and the relationship aspect of, uh, of the diverse Canada that we have. And SQ, spiritual yes. quotient. Ah, very good, very good. Where is yeah. purpose, where is meaning? Yeah. What is reverent, what is sacred? That's right, exactly. Necessary. I like that, I'm gonna add that in there too, absolutely. <laughs> so um, now that we're reaching you know, the end of the, the interview, I'm just wondering, like, let's say somebody was going to hire you. And they said, you know, Lewis, you're the you're the person we've been looking for. Tell us how we can work best with you. What would you say? Oh, there's so many things. Okay, I think one of the most important things is to actively listen, be present. Any person can tell that if you're there or not. I mean, we all know that seventy percent or more of communication is nonverbal. That means our, our subconscious is picking up a lot of body action and subtext. So when you're present, then you, you're, then the other person will know that you're actually there and listening to them. And actively listen, listening also means paraphrasing and ensuring that you understand what the person is saying, right? That's very important because 90% of uh, uh, workplace problems uh, come from a miscommunication and misunderstanding, right? Um, and if you don't have good communication, then, then you're not going to be having a, a good relationship. So people need to communicate. We're hardwired for that. We need to, you know, we need to see each other uh, interacting in a, in a very positive way, in a meaningful way. But also another thing that I would uh, advise folks is to watch assumptions. Because the uh, personal and cultural worldviews shape assumptions. And we have to understand as, as, as Canadians that we all don't see the world exactly in the same way, right? Uh, indigenous people have other perspectives. Um, and I've run into this a lot. The way that uh, our society is shaped, it places value on, on status and, uh, and acquisition, like wealth acquisition, that sort of thing. And so what I've seen in my practice and uh, in, in doing business is that sometimes Times uh, an indigenous um, process can be seen as a way of usurping or undermining somebody else's power, right? And so, and that's shaped by uh, assumptions, culturally and uh, and personally determined, right? So we have to become aware of our own worldview. Maybe people need to be willing to be detached. Don't they need to be maybe cleansed of their assumptions? Because if I'm really stuck on the way I see the world and experience yeah. the world, I think everybody else has the same thing. And if they're not cooperating is because they're not like me. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. Then I can't open up, right? It can't be open. So you see open, but you also have to be willing to let those assumptions go. One example of that is the, uh, is the grand entry of a powwow. <laughs> on, the, uh, on the program, it'll say the grand entry into the powwow where all the VIPs and elders and, and that walk in to the, to the drumbeat, will start at 7 p.m. Well, it's 8 o'clock now. How come, you know, it is, they're really late. How come they don't start on time? Well, what they don't know is that within Indigenous traditions, certain things have to be done first. You have to do this first. You have to do that first. This person has to be in to do that. So it's much like a baseball game. Three, uh, you know, you have uh, three out three up and three out. And uh, that's one inning. And then you do that nine times, nine innings. Sometimes the uh, baseball game is an hour and a half. Sometimes it's four hours. But because it's going from point to point first, it's not time oriented. So you're, an assumption of seeing something starting late with Indigenous people might be missing the fact that they actually are following a different trajectory. That means that this has to be done. And then we move to the next thing that has to be done. And then finally, when all these things are done, then you can have your grand entry. <laughs> and and, and nobody has a, has a big fit about it if the baseball game is four hours long That's because right. they understand how that works. And so if we all, I really love that 
the way you explain that, because going from point to point and making sure that the, the, the necessary protocols have, have taken place and the right people are in the right spot and everyone's had their turn, that's necessary. And you don't worry about time if that's if <laughs> time does is irrelevant. <laughs> I mean, that's what that's the thing about assumptions. Right. So uh, we just have to become aware and including myself, of course, uh, of my assumptions when I'm working with other people. Yeah, that's lovely. Really like it. Uh, so uh, when we're almost at the end, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the company that your adult children created and that you are a part of, Nahiyawen, which I think means Cree, correct? Yeah, Cree language. Cree language. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about that company and what it's like to have your, your children start something and then you join them and you're working as a family in this well, you know, I'm, I'm very uh, honored that uh, they have me a part of their team. I mean, they do all the heavy lifting. Um, I provide them with whatever insights I can from my from my history and from my family history, but also provide them with a lot of contacts into the community. I think uh, between my brother and I, we know everyone in Canada is Indigenous. <laughs> if not, we're related to them. Uh, nonetheless, um, the work that they do is really, again, carrying on that tradition of relationship building particularly being led by the value and the perspective of treaty and treaty relations and fulfilling those obligations as treaty people to our community that we're surrounded with in Edmonton. So they do a lot of uh, work that connects uh, companies, governments um, to or nonprofit organizations to, uh, to, to the indigenous community in a very broad way. Sometimes it's specific, sometimes it's um, it's more broad, like consultations, uh, having projects developed. That's the work that they do. And it's quite broad. You know, they, as a part of their company, they developed a, a play called Lake of the Strangers, which won a Sterling Award for Outstanding New Play in Edmonton this year. So I'm very proud of them with that. I helped them with that a bit. They even had me do a walk-on part, which was kind of nice. I'm not an actor. <laughs> but anyway, at least I didn't have, uh, I had one word to say, I think. So that was it. <laughs> Well, your presence was probably the most important thing of the whole play. I would like to think so. I would like to think so. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So, um, so now the thing is, you're also their dad, right? So, how do you make this work? Well, you know, at times it can be difficult because you know the 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 boundaries you know have to be established. Is that I am your senior strategic advisor, and uh, that's the role that I play. So we have to become aware of when we're talking about personal family things. And when we're talking about professional uh, responsibilities and roles, right? Uh, so they're, they're very good at, at, at following that. And so it's always a challenge, of course. I think when you're working with family, you're a bit more freer to speak, <laughs> speak your mind or express your frustration. Uh, so I think that we're, uh, we're learning how to work through that uh, really well. And, and I, you know, I think the work itself speaks for itself. So we're doing very good. Uh, it just occurred to me that the way you were speaking might be that uh, as a senior advisor, that would mean you'd say, this is what I would see. This is this, some strategy things to consider, but then you're still leaving it up to them to oh, yes. execute it, correct? Absolutely. Within uh, my model for the senior advising is the tradition of an elder. So the elder provides guidance, not direction. Right. Provides guidance and knowledge to a particular issue. The young leadership or the, you know, the leadership then makes its own decision if it will utilize that, uh, that information and that, and that knowledge. Uh, and that's the only thing that, that you can do. Sometimes some people have thought that elders make the decisions and traditionally they don't. That's left to the, to the leadership that the people have chosen, right? And that would be also the role of any a senior statesman in a political situation. Bring wisdom, experience, and guidance to a situation, but you do not try to interfere with the decision-making. And on the other hand, the people who are making the decisions listen intently and consider very seriously the guidance that they're receiving and then weighing the possibilities move forward. Yes, exactly, exactly, yes. And because... They need to be able to make their decisions. They need to live with the consequences of their actions. And from that, they will also gain knowledge and understanding and, and wisdom that they then will be able to pass on to the next generation. Hmm. So anything else that you'd like to say or leave the audience with? I, you know, I really, I really don't have anything to add, really. I mean, there's so much, so much that can be said, but I think one of the most important things that I want to leave behind is that, uh, you know, let's remember uh, 
that we're all related. I mean, I know it kind of sounds kind of uh, mushy, but we really are as human beings. There's only one human being race, right? It's, um, and so we, we have to realize that we are a lot more alike than we are different. And that through um, dialogue, uh, we can really improve our relations and relationships with each other. That's my eternal hope. Uh, but ask questions if, and reach out to the indigenous community or a person in the indigenous community to also become your guide if you need to access the indigenous community or want to learn more about indigenous traditions and knowledge. It's there to be shared, but there's a process and protocol in which to follow. Right. Which people need to seek out so they can be respectful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've done the same thing as well. So I have different connections in different communities that can help guide me through uh, various things. Awesome. Anything you would like to promote before we go? Well, just go to uh, nahayawin.ca. That's N-A-H-E-Y-A-W-I-N.ca. Uh, and, and there you'll see some of the work and, uh, and my kids' work and that sort of stuff. So there you awesome. go. So we'll have all of that in the show notes for everybody. And Louis, thank you so much. This was really wonderful. I could listen to you all day. It's, it was great. Cool <laughs> I learned so many new things and I really appreciated this opportunity. So thank you so much for spending your time with us. Well, thank you very much too. Walk side by side until you have built bridges of understanding. That is the relational approach informing all of Louis Cardinal's work as he acts to inspire a more just and equitable society. Through the power of Indigenous teachings, the value of treaty, story, and education, Louis reminds individuals, communities, government, industry, and institutions that we have obligations to each other that must be honored to inform the legacy we have borrowed from our grandchildren. My interview with Lewis made a profound impression on me. His explanations and metaphors are so helpful in understanding other people and our place and purpose in the world. The analogy of baseball as a way to understand non-linear time was just one of the many insights I learned from Lewis's wisdom. Thank you in advance for sharing and rating this podcast. You can send me a message at marie at shiftworkplace.com to offer opinions and suggestions for upcoming speakers, or go to Voxer to leave me a voice message. You can find me at Voxer at this address, mgerva, that's M-G-E-R-V-A, M-G-E-R-V-A 539. That is my Voxer ID, so M-G-E-R-V-A 539 to leave a voice message. If you leave a message, you might find your comment on an upcoming podcast episode. Thanks for listening, and may culture and leadership insights continue to guide your day.